Welcome to the special presentation of St. Gabriel Catholic Radio, Catechesis from the Cathedral. Join Father Adam Streitenberger on a tour of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In this episode, Father covers paragraphs 1420 to 1498, What is Reconciliation? Here's Father Streitenberger. Enjoy! So, this, this idea of the Eucharist as a sign of unity also points to that practice. But also, it is the reason for why only fully initiated Catholics can receive the Eucharist in normal, normal instances. However, the Catechism does say in 1399 that those who are members of the Eastern churches, so the Eastern Orthodox, that if they do not have access to the pastoral care of their own churches, may receive communion at the Catholic Church. Because we essentially believe everything together. We believe in the true sacraments. We believe in apostolic succession. We believe in the priesthood. We believe in the Eucharist. Other, what are called ecclesial communities in 1400, in 1400 paragraph 1400, those communities derived from the Reformation and separated from the Catholic Church may, if they manifest true belief, belief in, in what we believe about the Eucharist, and publicly, are willing to kind of publicly recognize that, can receive communion in an emergency at their deathbed. Of course, the normal way by which, if they believed everything that the Catholic Church believed, well, then they would publicly profess that and become members of the Catholic Church and enter into communion that way. Then the, the last grace, we could might call it the ninth grace, is that the Eucharist is the pledge of the glory to come. We're reminded that the glory to come is already present at the Mass. That is why we refer to it as not just any feast. It's not an earthly meal. It's not a reenactment of the Last Supper. It is, if we want to call the Mass a meal, a feast, it is that it is an eschatological feast It is a share in the eternal feast of the Lamb in heaven with all of the saints and the angels. And therefore, the ninth grace of of the Eucharist is that it, it strengthens our hope and our resolve, our confidence in the pledge of the glory to come. Because it's a share in already in the glory to come. That ends the Catechism's treatment on the Eucharist which ends in paragraph 1419. The next sacrament, which we're going to um, start now, is the sacrament of 
penance and reconciliation. We're reminded that the sacrament of penance and reconciliation and anointing of the sick are what we call the sacraments of healing. Christ continues in the power of the Holy Spirit his work of healing and salvation even among her own members. He's willed that the church continue this work. So the sacraments are the continuation of the salvific, the salvation working, the redemptive working of Jesus Christ and his spirit. They remember this joint mission. They work together. The Son and the Spirit, their joint mission continues in the church's cooperation with the Holy Spirit. And that that mission continues especially in the sacraments. The Catechism quickly defines the purpose of this sacrament. The basic purpose, to obtain pardon from God's mercy for the offense committed against him and at the same time to be reconciled with the church. If you're looking for a succinct um, understanding of this section, 1422 is your paragraph. So first, the catechism looks at the names of the sacrament. Some of these names are not part of our kind of customary reference to it. But it's referred to as the sacrament of conversion because this is where we continue the process of our conversion. The first step of returning to the Father from whom one has strayed by sin. It's the sacrament of penance because by it, The sinner, um, through both his personal and through what the church does in the process, goes through the steps of conversion, penance, and satisfaction. It's called the sacrament of confession because this disclosure, this confessing of our sins to the priest is an essential element of the sacrament. We call it the sacrament of forgiveness because it is the means by which through absolution that we receive pardon and and peace. And then fifth, we call it the sacrament of reconciliation because it imparts a twofold reconciliation. We are reconciled to God and we are reconciled to the church. If we're looking for biblical references to the institution of this sacrament, and the catechism is going to kind of give us a view of when this was instituted, when this sacrament was instituted. But one of the easy ways is to do a word search in the New Testament of the word reconciliation. In that, you'll stumble across the writings of Paul, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, primarily 2nd Corinthians, where he talks about his role as an apostle. 
as an ambassador of, of reconciliation, a minister of reconciliation. So having gone through the names, then the catechism switches and why is there a need for a sacrament of reconciliation after baptism? Well, first of all, we're reminded of a couple things by the existence of this sacrament. First of all, we're reminded of how wonderful of a gift of forgiveness the Lord gives us in the sacrament of Christian initiation. I think we lose sight of that, perhaps because most of us were infants when we were baptized, of, of, of just how much we were forgiven by baptism, how much has been washed away by baptism. We also, I think, are reminded by the existence of this sacrament that even though much has been forgiven of us, we still fall into sin. That even after baptism, it's not just quite possible that we will fall into sin, it is very likely that we fall into sin. The Apostle John tells us, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That's 1 John 1, chapter 1, verse 8. The Lord himself, in the Lord's Prayer, teaches us to pray that the Lord might forgive our trespasses. Another um, important point which reveals to us why the Lord instituted this sacrament, even after all the wonderful things that were done at baptism, is the idea of conversion and the importance of conversion. So important is the catechism is going to talk about this in, the, in, um, in a few paragraphs down the road, but to set this up, we're reminded essentially that there is a conversion connected to our initiation into the church, a Christian initiation, baptism, Eucharist, confirmation. Nevertheless, the new life received in Christian initiation has not abolished the frailty and weakness of human nature nor the inclination to sin that tradition calls concupiscence. We talked about this when we talked about original sin. So the first conversion is this rejection um, of our fallen human nature, of original sin, a conversion which is really marked by our baptism. But then there is this ongoing conversion because... Even though baptism will forgive us of our original sin and of all other sins, we still have this weakened human nature, what the catechism calls concupiscence, this inclination to sin. John named it, as we, we heard earlier in this quote, 
that we deceive ourselves if we think we won't fall into sin or that we don't fall into sin. I used to think that original sin, and with it concupiscence, was the most obvious thing about what we believe as Christians. But I find that even now people deny that truth. So then the Catechism says that because of this concupiscence, there still remains in the baptized the need for ongoing conversion. Just the other day um, in the Gospels, there was the story of how Jesus, um, there's this blind man and Jesus spits and puts it in his eyes. And um, the man can see, but not clearly. Things are fuzzy, you know. Um, And so then the Lord um, touches his eyes again and then he can see perfectly or, you know, as good as good as as it is going to get. The idea is, is that baptism is this initial conversion. It marks an initial conversion and initial turning from sin. But then there is this ongoing and the sacraments, especially the sacrament of confession, helps us in that process, the continual healing, the ongoing conversion. So the catechism then says, so the first conversion of baptism, paragraphs 1427 through 29, Jesus calls us to conversion. It's an essential part of the proclamation of the kingdom. And that baptism is the principal place for the first and fundamental conversion. So we, when we talk about the kerygma, the basic message of Christianity, what Jesus proclaimed, what the apostles were sent out to proclaim, what each of us have to give a testimony to in our life as as missionary disciples, it has to include the call to conversion and an invitation to respond. But Christ's call to conversion continues to resound in the lives of the Christian. And we call this the second conversion. The Catechism defines this second conversion as an uninterrupted task for the whole church. But we're reminded that this ongoing work is not our own work. It's not a human work, not just a human work. It is by the gift of grace that our hearts are moved to this ongoing conversion. The Catechism points to us an example to illustrate this ongoing conversion, and it's Peter himself. Peter is initially converted to the Lord. We hear his calls along the Sea of Galilee. And then, of course, we know he falls, which illustrates to us that a fall after baptism is sort of the pattern of the day. It's not unexpected. 
But Peter himself converts, as we know, after the resurrection of the Lord, and the Lord appears to him. Of course, we know that the Lord asks Peter three times, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? Peter responds, yes, yes, you know that I do it, you know that I do. And of course, the Lord responds, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. It's an indication that absolution, this ongoing conversion, is both a reconciliation to Christ, do you love me, and a reconciliation with the church, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. So that is an instance of the sacrament of confession. The catechism then talks, so we have this conversion of the baptized, and then there is what is called an interior penance, interior penance, which is different than the sacrament of confession. It's a part of this ongoing conversion. It's really at the heart of the interior conversion that leads us to the sacrament of confession. Interior penance. Jesus calls Jesus called a conversion and penance like that of the prophets before him does not aim first at an outward work. Sackcloth and ashes, fasting and mortification, but first at the conversion of the heart, an interior conversion. I think when we struggle with sin, we see the the validity of what the catechism is teaching here. It resonates with our experience that when we fall into sin there is first this interior movement to repent the catechism goes on to say and this really this section um, 1430 through 1433 is a a wonderful reflection on this internal interior movement of our hearts in conversion I think it's um, It's actually, you know, out of everything in this section. As I said, every time I read the Catechism, there's something um, different that pops into my mind. Not necessarily new, but something different that really kind of hits me. And it really was this section on interior penance, 1430 through um, 1433. So it goes on. So once we have this sort of um, movement of our heart, this conversion of the heart, it leads us to an interior repentance, which is a radical reorientation of our whole life, a return to conversion to God with all our hearts, to an end of sin and a turning away from evil. The Catechism then goes on to say that the conversion of heart is accompanied by a salutary pain and sadness, which the fathers um, call an affliction of spirit or a repentance of heart. 
that when we fall into sin, when we catch ourselves in this situation, there's first this turning away from evil, and then second, a desire to live a new way. And it is a certain pain, interior pain and sadness. So when one falls into um, to sin, there is this first realization that you have fallen into sin, which immediately has this desire to move away from the evil, to turn away from the evil, to live in a new way, a new way free from this evil, And it's accompanied with a certain pain and sadness that lingers. Then we're told, this human heart is heavy and burdened. God must give man a new heart. It's interesting that the catechism connects this all to the heart. The human heart is converted by looking upon him whom our sins have pierced. So in paragraph 1432, there's a recognition that from this fall that has happened, our heart is still heavy and hardened. But we can't give ourselves a new heart. It is God who must give us a new heart. How do we get this new heart? The catechism says, by looking upon him whom our sins have pierced, by looking towards the sacred heart of Jesus Christ. How is that going to happen? Well, this I think sets up, how do we Look upon the heart of Jesus. Well, then that leads us then what I think is the, what the catechism is setting up as the next step. So there is this internal realization of sin that I've fallen into it. Then the catechism says there are many forms of penance in the Christian life. To begin, we might say, this process of gazing upon the heart that has been pierced on our behalf. The interior penance of the Christian can be expressed in many and various ways. So once the internal reality is there, then it wants to manifest itself, to respond. Traditionally, this is done in fasting, prayer, and almsgiving. Conversion is accomplished in daily life by gestures of reconciliation, which includes concern for the poor and exercise and the defense of justice and right. This ongoing penance of daily conversion is nourished by the Eucharist. It's nourished and strengthened by our reading of sacred scripture and by our life of prayer. And it is especially strengthened by our seasons and days of penance. 
this whole process. So once we have this interior conviction of our need for conversion, then it begins to manifest itself in this outward sign of returning to the Father. The Catechism says a great passage to reflect on this is the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son. It is with this living in this state of continual interior conversion, recognizing that we're falling into sin, that we have fallen into sin, and responding to that, that then sets up the need for the sacrament of penance and reconciliation. And it is, as the Catechism repeats again and again, The sacrament of reconciliation restores us, reconciles us to God and to the church. It is a dual dual one, dual reconciliation. Or we might say that really our union with God comes about because of our union with the church. And our union with the church comes about because of our union with God. So if we break our union with one, we're going to break our union with the other. Fourteen forty one and fourteen forty two sets up how this sacrament, when this sacrament was instituted. Of course, we're reminded that only God can forgive sins. Jesus Christ, throughout his public ministry, says that he forgives people's sin. That is not Um, You know, we so often, I think, in our post-Christian age, think that, you know, if someone does me harm, I have to forgive this person for them to be forgiven. We do need to forgive people that harm us, but it's God who ultimately forgives them. God is the one who forgives sins. When Jesus Christ claims that he forgives sins... He's saying, listen, I'm God. I'm divine. I'm the Son of the Father. He gives this authority to his apostles. He entrusted the exercise of the power of absolution to the apostolic ministry, which he charged with the ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.18, 2 Corinthians 5.20. This ministry of reconciliation, the power and authority to forgive sins. The Catechism will say a little bit later, and it has said this earlier because the Catechism just repeats itself again and again and again. Um, Repetition is the mother of learning. It is by... um, it is the also, of course, when Christ gives the authority to bind and to loose to Peter and then to all of the apostles. That also is this ministry of reconciliation. It's also a reconciliation with the church. And that's what this idea of the binding and loosing indicates that the apostles who have this authority given to them by Christ to forgive sins, 
that as they bind someone or loose someone from their break with the church, so if they reconcile someone with the church, it is automatically a reconciliation with God. And in the same way as they reconcile someone with God, they reconcile them with the church. Matthew 16:19, Matthew 18:18, 18, 18, Matthew 28:16 through 20. That's some of these uh, binding and loosing. Luke 15, Luke 19:9. Reconciliation with the church is inseparable from reconciliation with God, the catechism says. The sacrament of confession has taken on different forms over the years. So first of all, 1446 tells us that this sacrament is important because it really kickstarts the process of this internal conversion. We're told Christ instituted the sacrament of penance for all sinful members of the church. Above all, for those who since baptism have fallen into grave sin and have thus lost their baptismal grace and wounded ecclesial communion, it is to them that the sacrament of penance offers a new possibility to convert and to recover the grace of justification. So mortal sin, the catechism here doesn't use the phrase mortal sin, it says grave sin. Grave sin. So any violation of the commandments, the catechism by using grave sin um, seems to rule out, and I don't want to kind of go down this rabbit hole because it's, there's, some, there's some terminology issues in this section and in the morality section that you know, I have to kind of walk on a tightrope with. So, but... Normally we would say mortal sin, but they say grave sin. So any violation, it would appear, any violation of the commandments, regardless of one's intent and one's knowledge, is what is, this is sort of the tightrope um, in this section, in this section and other sections of the catechism. We have, the, the idea is we have to take the commandments seriously, not in a legalistic sense, in the sense of, oh, well, what are different grades of gravity? So the catechism is pretty clear that all of the, all of the commandments are to be taken seriously as grave, grave matter. But when we fall into mortal sin, we'll just use, you know, having made that distinction... Um, when we fall into mortal sin, it kills the divine life within us, the baptismal graces. We still have this image of God, and we still have the indelible marks of those sacraments. But we have lost the likeness. We have lost um, the charity. We have lost this um, um, grace of justification. And so the sacrament of confession reconciliation restores that. 
So, as the Catechism had talked, talked, spoken earlier about internal conversion, this process that we're continually in, it presumes that we're in a state of grace, that we haven't fallen into mortal sin. When we fall into mortal sin, we need to kickstart. We need to get it fired back up again, this process. And the sacrament of confession not only restores the grace of our justification that we lost by this mortal sin, but it also restores us in this process of ongoing conversion. I don't think anyone, I hope, I mean, maybe there are. I'm, I'm beginning as I get older to not be surprised by anything. Um, there are probably very few people who exit the sacrament of confession and think, oh, good, you know, great, the process is over with. You know, I'm, I'm finished. You know, like this will be great. St. Francis of Assisi, um, I think having just um, received absolution on his deathbed, um, you know, they were talking to him and, you know, I don't know, you know, the sins of the flesh or something like that. And Francis on his deathbed said, I may, st- I may yet still have children, which was sort of a metaphor for, fa- you know, he could have still fallen even though he was on his deathbed. So the idea is, is that we're still in this process. But the sacrament of confession, if we've fallen completely, it restarts it. It kicks, you know, it kicks it back into gear. 1447 gives us a nice little summary. So originally the church, sort of the history of the sacrament, during the first centuries, this process was rough and tough. First of all, you, would, you could really only fall into mortal sin once or twice in your life. They were only going to let you go through the process once or twice. This process entailed rigorous discipline, public penance for their sins, often for years, paragraph 1447 tells us, before they received reconciliation or absolution. It was only later, with the Irish missionaries going throughout the world, that they introduced what had been done in the Eastern, um, Eastern monasticism, the Desert Fathers, Anthony, you know, and, and company. Um, Anthony of the Desert, Anthony the Hermit, not um, Anthony of Padua. And that was that um, sins would be confessed to the priest, um, um, penance would be given, and absolution would be given immediately. It's the form that we have now. Prior, you would confess your sins, you would do your penance for years, and then you would receive public absolution. the the sort of it's not the Irish didn't invent it it was being done in the desert in the three hundreds um, so the practice is um, is pretty ancient itself beneath the changes in the discipline um, there's a fundamental structure 
And it's really two equal elements. The, the contribution of the penitent and the contribution of the church or Christ whom the priest acts in the person of. So the, in the sacrament of reconciliation, the priest acts in the person of Christ and in the person of the church. Why? Because it is a joint reconciliation, you know, it is this common reconciliation to the two. So, first of all, the essential elements on behalf of the person. First of all, is this um, internal action, both of the Spirit and of the Holy Spirit and the person's cooperation. Which leads to contrition, a genuine sorrow for the sin, a confession of the sin, and then a satisfaction, a desire to undo the damage that was done. And then there is God's action through the intervention of the church or the priest, which entails determining determining the manner of satisfaction, praying for the sinner, and even accompanying the sinner in doing penance. The best confessors in the church, I'm not one of them, so don't, don't get into my line, but the best confessors in the church give small penances, but do the rest of the penance on behalf of the penitent. Um, And then, of course, they forgive the person. The catechism gives the, um, the form, the words of the sacrament, which have to end in this line, And I absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So the catechism then looks at the acts of the penitent, And then it's going to look at the minister of the sacrament. So first of all, there is a need for contrition. Contrition, the definition is the sorrow of the soul and detestation for the sins committed, together with a resolution not to sin again. So our our soul must be sorrowful, it must detest the sin And it must resolve not to sin again. Those three things are necessary. If it arises out of love for God, we call this perfect contrition or the contrition of charity. Such contrition remits venial sin even without going to the sacrament of confession. However, it also obtains forgiveness of mortal sin if it includes the firm resolution to have recourse to the sacrament of confession as soon as possible. So, you know, you you find yourself in mortal sin. What you do is you make an act of contrition and you're genuinely sorrowful. For your sin, 
you make an act of contrition with the intent to go to confession as soon as possible. That's what, that's what we do. As soon as we catch ourselves falling into mortal sin or having fallen into mortal sin, we, you know, if that genuine, you know, if that genuine contrition is there, we make an act of contrition with the firm resolution to get to confession as soon as possible. And by as soon as possible, I mean as soon as possible. You know, don't, don't call the priest at midnight, but, you know, go to the next time it's scheduled. You know, there's enough, you know, the sacrament of confession is offered enough in the Diocese of Columbus that you can find, you know, you can find it pretty quickly. 1453 gives us another definition, attrition, attrition with an A, or imperfect contrition, it's sometimes called. It's a gift of God, a prompting of the Holy Spirit. It is born of the consideration of sin's ugliness or the fear of eternal damnation and the other penalties threatening the sinner, contrition of fear. So, you know, it may be, this may be because we, this sin is ugly and we see its ugliness. It may be that we fear eternal damnation. It may be that we fear some other penalty. Um, That penalty may be an excommunication from the church. We're afraid of an excommunication. I suppose it may even be that um, a husband is afraid that his wife is going to kill him. You know, this may be, may be genuine, but she might still kill you, so... The stirring of uh, conscience can initiate an interior process which, under the prompting of grace, will be brought to completion by sacramental absolution. So it stirs our conscience to desire something more, to go into this interior process of conversion, ongoing process, even deeper. And sometimes it is down the road, even though we've received absolution, it is down the road that a more perfect form of contrition arises for the sin. I think we shouldn't be um, afraid of the memory of our former sins. So sometimes when the sins of our past re-arise in our memory, um, we should not see this as thinking that have, you know, the absolution that I received was somehow invalid. It is an invitation to humility, but it also is an in- intention to a more perfect form of contrition for that sin of our past, and then also to keep at the ongoing process of conversion. 1454 gives us another definition, examination of conscience. That's when we look over um, at our life, at our conscience, considering the Ten Commandments, the moral catechesis, the Gospels, 
the Sermon on the Mount, the virtues, the apostolic letters, um, apostolic teaching. We look over um, our actions to consider what we have done. An examination of conscience should be done every night before we go to bed. And certainly it should be done before our regular going to the sacrament of confession. The catechism still on the acts of the penitence goes through the confessions of sin. First of all, it tells us from a very, even from a simple human point of view, the confessing of our sins to someone else, to the priest in the sacrament, is good for us. It unburdens us. The confession to a priest is an essential part of the sacrament of penance. And all mortal sins of which the penitent, after diligent self-examination, is conscious of, must be recounted in this confession. So first of all, we really have to make sure that we've examined our conscience well before we go to the sacrament of confession. We're required to do that. And then we need to give a precise list of our mortal sins. What we have done and the number of times that we've done it or the approximate number of times we've done it. Form and number is how that is sometimes called. We don't have to give an elaborate story um, or the reasons why we did it. We just have to say what we've done and the number. I think that's more painful to have to give a, an elaborate story behind, you know, why I fell into this sin. Why, um, uh, the Catechism uses this um, citation from the Council of Trent of the importance of, of being transparent in the sacrament of confession, in our confession. For if the sick person is too ashamed to show his wound to the doctor, the medicine cannot heal what it does not know. We are obliged, 1457 tells us, we are obliged to go to confession when we are aware of having committed a mortal sin. Until then, we must not receive communion. We're also bound once a year at least to confess serious sins. They use serious rather than grave in that particular reference. So that could mean um, venial sins that are, you know, are grave matter that we do not do freely, that we do habitually, that we do uh, without full knowledge. Or it may be venial sins that we routinely fall into quite regularly. So at least we want to go to confession once a year. My pastoral advice is to go once a month. And the reason why is um, most people can't even remember what they do in the course of a week. So we want to make sure that we're, we're... 
able to prepare a really good examination of conscience. Um, And a month, I think, is sufficient. But if you're falling into mortal sin regularly, then, you know, more often than once a month, then then you should go more often than once a month. Without being strictly necessary, confession of everyday faults, venial sins, is nevertheless strongly recommended by the church. Indeed, regular confessions of our venial sins have four effects. First of all, it helps to form our conscience. Second, it helps us to fight against evil tendencies. Venial sins grow up and become mortal sins. Three, it, let our, it lets ourselves be healed by Christ. You know, it's kind of like those video games, you know, where you've got ten points of power, but every, you know, shot you take, um, it, you know, you lose a point. But then you can get something else to kind of rebuild it. Even though you're not dead yet, you can rebuild it. So we don't want to, you know, or in another analogy is... You don't have to wait for the empty um, alarm to go on your car before you refill the gas, you know. In fact, it's actually better that way. Um, and then finally, um, we, the, the confession of venial sins, it helps us to progress in the life of the Spirit. This is 1458. Satisfaction, 1459 through 1460. So there's a distinction that's being made. This is an important distinction because it helps us to understand also indulgences. And that is that absolution takes away the guilt of sin, what we call the eternal punishment of sin. However, there is still a damage that is done to us. And, in the case of every sin, damage done to the church and often to other people. And so we have to make a satisfaction. One form of that satisfaction is, you know, so, for instance, if we steal, paying back what we've stolen. Or if we've said something bad, destroyed someone's reputation then we need to rehabilitate their reputation. But the penance that is given to us is not, is not to earn the forgiveness of, original, of, of sin, the remittance of eternal punishment. That's been given to us freely by absolution. The penance goes to rebuilding what is called the temporal effects, the temporal punishment of sin, the damage that's done. Not so much, you know, you know, most priests would not say to you, oh, well, you stole a million dollars from your neighbor. Your penance is to repay that million dollars to your neighbor. No, you should repay that million dollars to your neighbor for proper satisfaction. The penance is to undo the spiritual damage to yourself and the church that your sin has, has caused. Next couple paragraphs, we're reminded the, um, that 
priests, that bishops, the successors of the apostles and priests, um, are the ministers of this sacrament. Um, they are encouraged to make it available. Um, they are bound by a seal because of the delicacy of the content of this. They cannot reveal what is received, what is, what is you know, the, the, the nature of the confession, nor can they use the knowledge gained in the sacrament of confession. Another way of saying it is they must act as if whatever they've heard in the sacrament of confession, they do not know. So if you tell the priest when you're at confession that you've been diagnosed with cancer or that you're pregnant, he can't act on, he, you know, he's going to have to, if he sees that you're swelling up because of pregnancy, he, you know, he can't presume, at least from the knowledge of the confession, that you're pregnant. And hopefully he won't ask you if you're pregnant, if you're, so, or he'll get in trouble. Not from the church, but... Um. Then the Catechism talks about the effects of this grace. One, it reconciles us with God, which is the primary purpose of this sacrament. And in that, it enables a spiritual resurrection. Second, it reconciles us to the church, restores us to communion with the church, and sharing in that spiritual treasury... It also anticipates, it's a share in our final judgment. It prepares us. Because when we die, God's going to go through this list with us. And then at the end of the world, after we've risen from the dead, risen from the grave, he's going to go back over the list in front of everyone else. So you think, um, you know, you, you don't want the priest to know what you've done, well, eventually the priest and the rest of the human race is going to know what you did at the end of time. The Catechism in 1471 through 79 or, talks about indulgences. The two principles of indulgence that we have to keep in mind is, first of all, this idea of temporal punishment versus eternal punishment. Absolution gets rid of eternal punishment, damnation, by the forgiveness of sin. However, just like with baptism, baptism gets rid of original sin, but there's still concupiscence, this inclination to sin. Parallel, the sacrament of confession and baptism, for that matter, remits eternal punishment. But the temporal punishment, the temporal effects of what we've done still remain. That effect isn't so much what we've done to the other person. The damage is really to the church. As members of the church, our sin takes away from the holiness of the church. And so because all of the church is united in this communion of saints... We share in the wealth of their grace, including the grace of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which in itself would make it nearly infinite. I mean, it's infinite. 
And so the church proposes these indulgences as means by which we, here on earth, can remit, can be freed from the temporal effects of our own sins and also in solidarity with our brothers and sisters in purgatory who are still part of the church to assist them if they still have the temporal effects of their sins by sharing in that infinite treasury of graces of the church. So that section 1471 through um, 1479 is crucial. Um, Just a couple points is this difference between eternal and temporal punishment. That it requires a perfect contrition on our behalf. Um, The forgiveness of sin and restoration of communion with God entails the remission of eternal punishment. There is this idea of the church's treasury, this infant value. The church's treasury is not the gold or the artwork at the Vatican. The church's treasury is her grace, the grace of her saints. That's the true treasure of the church. And indulgence, 1478, is obtained through the church who by virtue of the power of binding and loosing granted to her by Jesus Christ, intervenes in favor of the individual Christians and opens for them the treasury of the merits of Christ and his saints to obtain from the Father the mercies and the remission of temporal punishment due for sins. So 1478 gives us the definition. Finally, to end this section, um, the Catechism talks about the three ways that this sacrament, reconciliation, is given. The first is individual confession. The second are, the, are through these communal celebrations, which still entail individual confessions. And then the third is what is called general absolution. The catechism here uses general confession, but we don't want to confuse that with a long-standing spiritual practice of kind of confessing one's sins in general. What the catechism means is what we usually call in America um, general absolution, which is in a state of emergency when a priest couldn't hear all of the confessions, could give absolution as long as the people have the intention that if they survive this emergency, that they would confess those sins. This is listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio. You've been listening to Catechesis from the Cathedral with Father Adam Streitenberger. If you'd like to listen to this episode again, download it or share it with a friend, please visit stgabrielradio.com. Go to our audio archives and look for Catechesis from the Cathedral. Thanks so much for joining us today. God bless and have a great day.